Between 2016 and 2020, technology-related foreign direct investment between the United States and China has fallen by 96%, according to some new research from Bain & Company. In a section of the company's annual technology report, Karen Harris co-authored a piece about how U.S.-China FDI and technology has plummeted and how that decoupling will affect companies moving forward. Karen Harris is the managing director of Bain's Macro Trends Group, and we chatted with her about falling bilateral tech FDI, U.S. and Chinese indigenous tech drives, and how companies should be thinking about the shifting environment. From the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., this is the China Business Review Podcast. So how has this flow of U.S.-China foreign direct investment been shifting in the last few years? We saw that over the past year, uh, the completed FDI from China to the U.S. and the U.S. to China has fallen quite a bit. Foreign direct investment between the U.S. and China fell to about a little bit under $16 billion in 2020. And that was the lowest level for two-way flows that we'd seen since 2009, just to put that in context. The worst hit sector was technology. Technology Technology-related foreign direct investment between the two countries dropped by 96% from 2016 to 2020. No mystery why, given the the shifts in regime, both in China and uh, under Xi Jinping uh, policy shift, as well as, of course, under uh, President Trump in the United States. So at at the most basic level, what does this foreign direct investment in technology look like at the kind of nuts and bolts level? Are we talking Chinese companies acquiring stakes in U.S. companies or U.S. companies establishing new plants in China? What what does this actually look like on the ground? Sure. What we saw with Chinese FDI into the U.S., so start in one direction, is it, it, it was actually less than half of that total, about 15.9 billion. It was around 7 billion in 2020. That was a little bit up from uh, 6.3 billion in 2019, but it was really driven to your point by a handful of large uh, acquisitions. Tencent bought a big share in Universal Music. Harbin Pharmaceuticals bought GNC uh, Holdings, for example. Overall M&A transaction volumes uh, were pretty low, and we did not see a big change in greenfield investments. Uh, from the U.S. to China direction, which was about a little under nine billion of that, so slightly more than half. That was a fall of roughly a third from the prior year. And to put that in perspective, um, data from the Rhodium Group shows that that was at the lowest level since 2004. Uh, Of course, the pandemic had a big impact on greenfield investment. We don't know what that would have been, but not being able to access the country would obviously have had a major role in in slowing that down. Uh, And so we saw significantly fewer projects there, uh, but even the acquisition slowdown was there. And really a lot of the concentration was out of the tech sector entirely um, in both directions and looking more at things like cons- uh, consumer products and then in China, financial services. And do we have a sense for how big a role COVID played in this fall in FDI? I mean, it's probably pretty hard to pull that kind of stuff out of the data, but do you have any sense for that? 
it's hard to parse those two out. Obviously, the the shutdown in China would have had a big would have had an impact on just the ability to do deals, right? To do the diligence properly, to actually go and I guess in the olden days, shake hands, bump elbows, whatever people do to seal deals <laughs> these days, and get things done. But I wouldn't assume that with when. If ever COVID restrictions lift, I think we'll see a delay in China, particularly with the Olympics coming up and the uh, and its seeming commitment to extinction policies there in terms of COVID. Uh, even if those were to be lifted tomorrow, the the geopolitics are still quite tense between the US and China, and each is committed to being both at the bleeding edge and independent. I would say that aside from the basic logistics of COVID, one thing it did do was vastly increase suspicion between the US and China. First, it terrified many executives in the U.S. when Wuhan shut down and then the rest of China shut down. I think that was the first time it, it, it was like a um, when you take a PET scan and you drink the fluid to show what's happening in your body. It was like a PET scan of supply chains. And it really revealed the level of vulnerability there and forced many to try to think about alternatives and being more resilient in supply chains. And so to connect economic trends to national policies, how how do you think each country's indigenous tech drives factor in here? So, for example, Made in China 2025, though, that name is out of use now, or, or USICA or the CHIPS Act in the United States. You know, how do these drives affect these economic trends? So there, there are different drivers on different sides of the Pacific on this. In the U.S., the Trump administration really fired the starting gun for pushing back on the the US's loss of leadership or perceived loss of leadership or or future loss of leadership in core technologies regardless of what one thinks about the administration's policies in in trying to mitigate that situation i think it was the most full-throated declaration that the U.S. needed to really reinvest in keeping leadership across a bunch of core technologies. And that that policy, by the way, has been continued and in some respects even amplified in the Biden administration. I think the major difference between the, the policies between a Trump and Biden on this particular topic are that at least in declaratively, Biden has a more multilateral perspective on how to manage that. Now, which allies and how, obviously, there's the awkwardness, uh, oops, pun intended, around AUKUS between France and, and the UK and Australia, but the strengthening of the Quad Agreements, the Five Eyes, the emphasis on national security, and with technology and underpinning of that is something that started in the last administration and is only accelerating now, again, with that multilateral twist. Now, China is entering a very different uh, phase 
there was a, China's been committed for many years to attaining and maintaining leadership in key technologies, things that are intelligent, green, ubiquitous in terms of things like sensors, AI, quantum. And, and two years ago, the commitment to tech leadership expanded, intensified because of the trade war with the US. It was the, the measures against Huawei and initially ZTE and others on the entity list acted as a catalyst to intensify the Chinese view that they really needed to develop indigenous capabilities and core technologies. That intensity was reflected in the five-year plan in 2020, which promotes uh, directly tech self-sufficiency and scientific self-reliance, expanded the government's role in the supply chain where they can inspect and audit and manage cross-border production metrics, and investing, to your point, in areas where it doesn't have today real capabilities, uh, things like semiconductors. There's a, a weakness, of course, in that supply chain uh, on equipment, which will be hard to overcome since that is largely based out of Europe and the U.S. And is there any way for us to know whether this falling FDI represents investments being turned from foreign to domestic projects in both countries, or are investments just being canceled, or can we even tell from this data? I think it's hard to know. We've certainly seen in some industries commitments in directions that look like it is a renationalization, things like the CHIPS Act in the in the U.S. and commitment to manufacturing semiconductors onshore. Now, that's not the redirection from China, right? That was a lot of outsourcing that had happened. The, the leadership that had been obtained by TSMC, um, by companies in Korea, that, that now the U.S. is saying through our own indigenous companies, we'd like to regain some of that leadership in manufacturing. I don't know that it's clear that there is a that a company that would otherwise have put money in China is now investing it back in the US or even that we'd be able to follow that. You can imagine you're a US tech company on the manufacturing side. You may decide not to expand in China. You may decide that opening a greenfield facility in the USMCA zone, for example, in, in northern Mexico, is a better strategy for growth. You won't be unwinding what you did in China, um, and we won't know what you would have put in otherwise, but we will see that investment go to North America rather than China, for example. So it's pretty tough to trace those specific funds. Mm -hmm. and, and so one of the subheaders in your report is decoupling will define the future. So, so what exactly makes you come to that conclusion? Once you head down a path of the kind of suspicion and mistrust that, uh, that we see between the two countries, it's pretty tough to, to go back and erase that. And it is a competitive environment. These technologies, having technology leadership confers big advantages in terms of being the standard bearer, right? That is one that is one front on which we see China really investing at the UN in, telco, in telecom, for example, in trying to create the global standards in how industries are regulated. There's a reason 
we that English is a ubiquitous language in technology. It's because of the technology leadership of the United States. And so uh, there's a recognition of those advantages. There's also difference in values between the two countries on the basics of privacy, what security means, crudely or roughly speaking, China sees the internet as a sovereign space that they should regulate to preserve the safety of their citizens much the way they would regulate a border, a physical border, and not just allow anyone in, not just allow uh, willy-nilly immigration, um, in their case, very little immigration. Whereas Europe, the United States see the internet as more of a public common where individuals need to be kept safe from violence uh, on their person, which is defined differently in each region, but has the right to, to individual ownership and that there isn't a regulation of what comes in as much as, as choice about that of sort of free market. And those clearly can't exist in the same system side by side. And so we see that sort of pressure to uh, see that sort of pressure. There's also with technology becoming much more pervasive, it could become more invasive. And we see on both sides of the Pacific, that lack of trust playing out with, for example, DD's IPO being, uh, being halted because of concerns about who owns that data. Uh, the data of their customers and concern in the US about the security of things like 5G and backdoors and that sort of data security risk. Those are legitimate concerns. There's plenty of historic evidence to note that um, governments tend to use backdoors when they exist. And I think that has also created an environment where it's hard to imagine the kind of integration we saw um, we might have expected in the middle of the first decade of this of this century when it looked like there was a path of the, even the potential for a path of convergence to sort of 2000 to 2006 for example and if this trend is towards a more fractured environment then what does that mean for companies you know how should companies be thinking short and long term about this changing environment yeah. So we saw the. in many respects, you had started by asking me about where one of the earlier questions was about how COVID had impacted the tech industry and the industry in general. And I, I think it pulled, it flashed a warning light for two areas where companies, it's a, it's a no-lose situation to invest today. The first of those is for almost every company we work with, the talent shortage, the growth of China. It's really it's the economic miracle from 2000 to the last decade, that incredibly rapid growth sucked in global talent to the Asian region. Uh, we saw earlier in the last decade, just everyone knew someone who was moving to um, Hong Kong, to Singapore, to China itself, where there was just incredible growth in all sorts of areas. But even today, while we hear a lot about companies being short of basic workers, just to, to keep the lights on, every client we work with, every company I talk to, 
is struggling to find high-end talent, the talent in technology, because it's, again, become integrated into every type of business, this digital transformation. It is a necessity for companies that used to sell brick and mortar. Now they were forced to find online options during COVID, and it's just been a real challenge. So investing to be a great place to work for that sort of talent, which money helps, but certainly there are other elements of of value, of culture, of opportunity that employees value that would be important to think about. So it's a, it's a no-brainer to think about your talent strategy. The second is supply chain, which feels almost ridiculously cliched today. I'm sure if I clicked on CNBC, there'd be a story on supply chain right now. But the need to replicate, to invest in hedges and options in the supply chain, highlighted again with the shutdown in China, but also tariffs in some areas have really created the demand across almost every company to think about long-term supply chain strategy and to think about risks and pinch points. I think the the top thing about supply chain is the pinch points tend not to be the piece of equipment you know is absolutely vital. It's the things that we're seeing, for example, in Long Beach, which is there aren't there isn't enough manpower to unload a container to put it on a train or a truck to get it the heck out of the way so the next one can come in, right? It's the screws and the ball bearings. And this is where China had really made itself incredibly compelling and efficient because the ecosystem was there. And then I suppose. The, the other two, one is companies really had, they were thought of themselves as global. They had strategies that were multinational. The questions that that the executives were asking 10 years ago were, what's our next market with the idea of expansion being open everywhere. And now I think market choices are more difficult. We talk about having an international strategy, like a diplomatic core, rather than thinking about the entire world. Are there different uh, regional blocks, security blocks, trading blocks that will be easy to trade across, like the USMCA, like the probably the quads, five eyes? And will there be borders that will be more challenging to cross, where even if it even if the basic math of looking at the stats there might make it interesting, the complexities make it non-workable because of scale. And that goes into the last change or, or priority for companies, which is really thinking about government involvement much more strongly. We've seen this across uh, during COVID with the US government writing trillions of dollars of checks uh, underwriting technology policy. Uh, we see this today in climate with governments taking a much more active role in trying to create tailwinds behind markets and investments that allow companies sort of de-risk that or at least encourage uh, in open markets outside of China, encourage the private sector to come in in China. It's a much more direct process. And that means thinking about the government as a partner rather than as as a regulator um, to work with or around. I think that mindset of, of, of just thinking about specific regulations is one that's a little outdated and really uh, thinking about the more Bain works with a lot of 
private equity companies, so you have a general partnership who does the investment, but their limited partners are the ones that invest capital and really have an important say in, in the direction. And I think government needs to be considered more from that lens. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S. China Business Council, and you can always learn more about the work that we do on our website, uschina.org. This show is also a podcast companion to a digital magazine of the same name, and you can always read more articles about the economic and business aspects of the bilateral relationship at chinabusinessreview.com. If you like the show, please leave it a rating and review. It will always help other people find it. And as always, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back soon.